You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Transplantation, produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, covering current issues and practices in transplant medicine. IU Health, discover the strength of a leading national transplant center. Your host is Dr. Aaron Carroll, Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Director of the Center for Health Policy and Professionalism Research, and Associate Director of Children's Health Services Research at Indiana University School of Medicine. One of the most pressing problems in transplant medicine is that there are not enough organ donors to keep up with high demand. My guests today are Dr. Joseph Tector and Dr. Paul Helft. Dr. Tector directs the Transplant Surgery Xenotransplantation Research Program at Indiana University Health. His team is developing ways to use pig organs as a bridge to transplantation and even as a substitute when a human organ is not available. Dr. Paul Helft is director of the Charles Warren Fairbanks Center for Medical Ethics and is a member of the IU Health Ethics Committee and co-chair of the IU Health Ethics Consultation Subcommittee. This is the second in a two-part series on xenotransplantation. Doctors, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with Dr. Helft. Can we first discuss some of the ethical considerations of xenotransplantation? Yeah, I think there are a number of really important considerations that, in fact, many people have been thinking about over the last few decades since the ideas emerged and since the first clinical experiences happened. I think at the most basic level, you might think of the animal rights part of this. And again, if you're going to move forward with a xenotransplantation project or enterprise, you in a sense have to already accept that the use of animals in this capacity is something that ethically one could live with. There are people, of course, around who do not accept that, and they obviously have a legitimate position, but that's certainly one of the most basic and fundamental arguable points. The second has to do with what I might call surgical or medical novelty. So these are procedures that are out way on the cutting edge of international medicine. And in that sense, anything that's novel is going to raise new issues, the most fundamental of which is, can you take something that's new where the outcomes are very, very uncertain and take a human being who needs that to survive and inform them in a way that they can make a reasoned and rational decision, again, that satisfies all of the ethical requirements surrounding that. And then the third that I would comment on, and this is partly related to the novelty of it, is that we don't fully understand all of the other ramifications of doing xenotransplants. A good example would be zoonotic infections that we spoke about in the first program. So even though we obviously know a lot already about zoonotic infections, and there are world's experts both in the U.S. and internationally that know a lot about this, we don't fully and can't, in fact, fully understand the broad ramifications of zoonotic infections in a broader population of humans that might have received animal organs. Well, you bring up a number of good points, all of which are the kinds of things that you can see two arguments arguing against each other. How do you decide what's right? How do you move forward? This is what ethicists do, you know, most of the day. I think people think that we sit around and thinking of what's right <laughs> as if there were one thing that were right. But in general, ethics is about ordering goods. That is to say, there's almost never one right answer to a thorny and complicated problem. It's a matter of 
weighing priorities, measuring values, deciding which values need to you know, be prioritized or need to obtain in a given set of circumstances. So it's very rare in an ethical dilemma that you can come up with a single right answer to a problem, but rather it has to be looked at as a problem that's really about what's the best possible solution among difficult, thorny, complex solutions. How do you do that? And I'm only pushing you because it's like, you know, this is one of those things where it sounds very good in theory, but you're still going to have people who say this is absolutely wrong and people who absolutely need it. So how do you go about doing it? Well, and I think that the issue that I would have to take with the people who say, no, 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 this is wrong. You just can't do it for X, Y, or Z reasons is that that presumes that X, Y, or Z reasons are always things which should be prioritized over A, B, and C reasons, which might be just as good on the other side. And so that represents, in a sense, from a sort of ethical process standpoint, I think a misunderstanding of what ethics analysis tries to do, which again is to order things in ways that you know, people can live with and that you can make logical and cogent arguments for and that satisfy our you know, fundamental values at some level. You can never answer an ethics question that in a sense satisfies everybody's values because anything that's truly an ethical issue is going to have arguments on both sides. Let's say we solve many of those issues and we get to a point where xenotransplantation, perhaps with pigs, could resolve the donor organ shortage. If pig organs could be transplanted successfully, what are the implications for the entire transplant process in the United States? I'd like to start answering your question by talking a little bit about the process of developing a xenotransplantation approach that Dr. Tector talked about a lot in our first program. You know, there were many barriers to overcome at the level of immunology and basic science. That is, how do you take an organ full of foreign proteins and sugars and put it into a system that is going to recognize it immediately as foreign and get that to work? That requires overcoming extremely complicated hurdles at the level of bench science. The next step is to see if in a clinical living system that could work. And as Dr. Tector mentioned in the last program, you know, that requires experiments in a dish, requires experiments at the level of an organ itself. We keep in mind the eventual goal of being able to take organs from animals and putting into humans, but there are some intermediate steps that I think are important to mention. So one is that we don't want to just take data that we've derived from bench experiments, from organs in a box sorts of experiments, and then immediately start putting those organs into human beings who could literally die almost instantaneously. And in fact, there are examples in the, in the history of xenotransplantation in which there have been you know, hyperacute rejection and so forth that have led to that sort of demise. So that wouldn't be an ethical process. So instead, Dr. Tector and his colleagues have taken a much, much more careful long-term approach to this and said, again, we're going to start with the basic science, we're going to move to the early clinical science, and from there, the next step is probably to put them in human beings who have just been declared brain dead. Those people, at least for a period of time, retain what I'm going to call somatic function. So they may have an intact circulatory system, and their respiratory system can be maintained artificially with ventilators. These people, you know, for all intents and purposes, clinically, legally, ethically, are dead. They have lost all of the function of their brains. But again, they maintain some function of their bodies that could be utilized for experiments that really much more closely resemble what's going to happen in living individuals. And that's actually one of our next steps is to move in that direction to get data that will help us to understand what really happens in an in vivo system, in a real you know, human being's body, what happens in this process. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Carroll. Joining me today are Drs. Joseph Tector and Paul Helft. This is the second of a two-part series on xenotransplantation. Dr. Helft, I'd like to continue talking about what we were just talking about in the sense of putting pig organs into newly deceased people to see how the organ functions within them. How long would you think about keeping people going? Even though, I mean, obviously after death, but going with the organ to see how it functions. I think it's important just to understand a couple of baseline things, just so we understand what we're talking about. So what we would be talking about in these early experiments would be doing the experiments on human beings who've been declared dead. They've been declared brain dead. These would be people who would be candidates for organ donation, obviously. Some of that population of people who sustain brain injury or other devastating neurological injuries are not candidates for organ transplantation for various reasons. Maybe they have a a recent history of cancer or something like that. Or maybe we don't know why it was that they were declared brain dead. So we don't consider them to be otherwise candidates. And people have been doing experiments on the dead actually for hundreds of years. Some of those experiments are more or less ethically suspect in a way. But there's a whole body of research in the recent decades which has utilized the recently dead, some of whom have actually given permission or consent to do this themselves before they died. They've, in quotes, donated their body to science. And so this, we feel, is the best, you know, living system to get information about how these organs are actually going to function in people who we have a chance of saving. These are people whom we don't have a chance of saving because they are already dead. But below the neck, so to speak, their bodies are still functioning. They can help us to understand something that's exceedingly important going forward with the whole process. Paul, do you think it might be helpful to talk a little bit about the fact that there are actually national guidelines for the ethical use of the recently deceased? Right. This may sound, you know, incredibly novel, but again, people have been thinking about this issue for about a decade in serious ways, and there have been national groups that have gathered in order to work out kind of best practice guidelines because this idea of doing research on the newly deceased is, again, something that, you know, you can imagine the reactions for people who perhaps haven't thought about it at great length. The first time you ever think about it, it really sounds like something that's so far out as to be almost inconceivable. But the more you know about it and the more you think about it and the groups that have looked at this you know, in great detail, the more it actually resembles much of what we do in many other ways in experimental medicine, in experiments all across the world, in fact, that everybody finds ethically acceptable in other ways. Once the organ is put in and the experiment is approved and it's moving forward, I'm just curious as to how long we actually would want to watch an organ in a newly deceased person. Is it minutes? Is it hours, days? Is so this it more? is Dr. Tector. I, I would say to start with, we're going to probably look at a 24-hour window. That'll give us an indication that if you put the liver into someone, it's not going to tax their heart so much as to cause like total circulatory collapse. And it'll tell you a little bit about whether or not the liver is able to filter out the toxins. And the other big issue in liver xenotransplantation is that the pig liver actually eats human platelets. The endothelial cells actually phagocytose the platelets. And so one of our genetic modifications is specifically targeted for that. And so it would be good to know that over a 24-hour window that you could slow down the platelet phagocytosis enough that it would be safe to use. Let us say that this all works out very well and things are moving forward. Can we talk about some of the potential benefits as to what Zeno's transplantation would do for the organ donor shortage, Dr. Health? I think initially, and as Joe mentioned before, the idea would be that these organs, because there are so many immunological and other clinical barriers to overcome, 
are probably not going to be able to be put into human beings as a permanent replacement therapy for a liver that has failed. And so the way to look at them initially is that we will probably use them to bridge people to getting a cadaveric transplantation as their final therapy. We know right now, as we mentioned earlier, that many, many people die waiting because their liver has failed and because they become so sick from liver failure. And so we can imagine, for example, putting in a xenotransplantation organ that bridges somebody until they can finally receive the very, very scarce cadaveric organs that are currently the source of final therapy. And that might be a period of days or weeks or months even for people who otherwise might die waiting. So I think we look at this as a way of satisfying this bridge problem that we have currently. It's the people who are not getting an organ, who are dying, waiting for an organ that would be the initial population for these studies. Do you think it'll ever get beyond that? Do you think we'll get to a point where we will basically just have an unlimited source of organs and therefore there will be no more waits for organs at all? I think that's the eventual goal. And if these other you know, basic science, immunological, and other clinical barriers can be overcome, that as we talked about in the first program, that this will become a final, you know, call it a destination therapy, that this will be the final therapy for people who have organ failure and allow transplantation to be done almost as an elective procedure, whereas now it's done when organs come into the system and really only done when organs come into the system, especially for liver transplantation, not as true in kidney transplantation. So from your perspective, what do you see coming down the pike? What is the future of xenotransplantation in your domain? What are the next barriers to overcome? I mean, I'm very hopeful about this whole enterprise. I'm very hopeful because there are lots of brilliant people working on it and that the major barriers that have been identified have been things which 30 years ago would have been considered insurmountable. So how do you take a pig who has natural antigens and put that pig's organ into a human being and expect the immune system not to completely reject it? Well, we can now manipulate those antigens through genetic engineering. So those barriers that, again, 30 years ago, I think would have been unthinkable sorts of insurmountable problems are not any longer. Also, the science of immune suppression for the recipients of organ donation has advanced tremendously in the last 25 years, so much so that patients who receive liver transplants often live for years and years and years and years and even decades afterwards with the same organ, again, unthinkable, 25 years ago. Well, Doctors Health and Tector, unfortunately, we're out of time. But this was the second in a two-part series on xenotransplantation. Doctors, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You have been listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This program is produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, the strength of a leading national transplant center. Discover the strength at iuhealth.org forward slash transplant. To find more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.